And those of us who are alive and remain, open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 32. Our last time together, we looked at the subject of humility through suffering. That God uses affliction in our life to humble us that we would be dependent upon him. And a verse that kept coming up as we considered the idea of suffering through the eyes and the experience of, of David when it's a function of his suffering being a result of judgment because of sin, and then looking at the life of Job and the Apostle Paul and the Lord Jesus, how each of these men demonstrated that humility, humbling themselves under the mighty hand of God, then made it to where they were able to receive grace from God. Grace to be able to endure the affliction. Grace in order to be able to praise him in the face of affliction. And a verse that kept coming up as we were considering that is, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So if you find yourself in life where you seem to be bereft of grace, it would probably be a good idea to consider if you're being proud. If you are standing in opposition to God. Now, for application last week, we were short of time, and so we dealt with one topic. The idea that somehow it's okay to be angry with God, to be unhappy with him, because we're not getting what it is that we think we should be able to get, and the utter and abject foolishness of such thought. When I stand in opposition to God because I'm not being treated the way that I think I ought to be, I have set myself up not as one who is under God, but one who stands in judgment of him. I have become his critic how well did that go for Job? When God first speaks with him and says, will the fault finder bring an accusation against me? How is it that one comes to the place where somehow we know more than him? Paul in Romans 11, after speaking of all of the, the greatness of God in, in chapters 9 to 11, how, how God has for a time uh, set aside the people of Israel. But the day is coming when they are going to be redeemed and they are going to be rescued and they are going to again be his people. And he, he, he erupts. You can hear him. He is just overcome. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. And then he asks two rhetorical questions. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should be his counselor? Or who has first given to him that he should be repaid? Do you know where those two rhetorical questions come from? They come from the book of Job. Job needed to hear them. Because where had Job come to? Lord, you need some advice. You're treating me this way, and it ought to be different. Time out. That's pride. That's wickedness. And so Job was humbled. Paul was humbled by his thorn in the flesh. Jesus had to learn how to humble himself as a man in bringing the desires in his, in his humanness under the will of the Father. And of course, that the, 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 the culmination of that is in the garden, right? Father, if there is any other way, if there is any other way, let this cusp this cup passed from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And so today, we want to flesh out what does this look like to be humbled before God? How can we respond righteously to affliction, to difficulty? And so we're going to look at three perspectives. Now, these aren't one-time shots. This isn't something that you do once and, okay, when it comes to this issue, this is resolved because that's not realistic. It's certainly not what happened with Job. So we're going to take three looks. We're going to have a look inward. We're going to have a look upward. And we're going to have a look outward. For the look inward... If you're not already there, go to Psalm 32. Now, Psalm 32, we're told, is a psalm of David. But we're not told when these events occurred to him. We know from Psalm 51 that that is his psalm of repentance to God over the event with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. Psalm 32 is a psalm of the blessedness of forgiveness and of trust in God. And so let's read it. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin, Selah. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Now, when David sinned with Bathsheba, committed adultery with her, and then caused the murder of her husband in battle, he concealed his sin for months. He kept it hidden. He did it in secret. He committed these acts in secret. And he tried to keep it quiet. And God graciously sent the prophet Nathan to him. Graciously, why? What was David's life going to be like while he hid his sin? In fact, if you look in Psalm 51, it talks about bones that were broken. Now, that's figurative. David hadn't been maimed. But David's sin was heavy on him. Have you found that to be true? When you have unconfessed sin, and all of a sudden it feels like the life is being sucked out of you, You know, what does it sound like? My vitality was drained away. Your hand was heavy upon me, groaning all the day long, body wasting away. That kind of sounds like something that has a diagnosis in our culture. It's called depression. God bringing affliction on you. Why? Because you're acting like a horse or a mule. You need a bit in your mouth. You need someone to yank the chain of the, whatever it is that's called, the reins, that's what they're called. What happens to a horse when you're sitting on its back and you want it to go somewhere that it doesn't necessarily want to go? You pull on the rein, and what does that rein do? Well, that rein pulls on this bar of metal that's in the mouse horse and applies pressure to get the horse to turn its head in the direction you want it to go. You can force the horse into compliance with a bit and a bridle. God doesn't want us to have to be forced to comply, because by the very nature, what's the very nature of having to, of requiring the bit and the bridle? Because the horse has its own will, and that will 
is not naturally, it's not voluntary subjugated to the will of the writer. So the writer is going to use pressure. The writer is going to use force in order to bring about compliance. Does God want us to be compliant? No. He doesn't want us to be compliant. What does compliance imply? I'm doing it, but not because I want to. I'm doing it because I have to. It's like telling the little kid, Johnny, sit down. And Johnny sits down, and he's looking at you, and you can see the steam coming out from his ears as he looks and he says, I'm sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. So is Johnny obeying from the heart? No. No, he's not. God doesn't want us to comply. God wants us to obey from the heart. Paul talks about it in Romans. You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that was given you. So the idea of the inward look is this. Is my suffering, is my adversity, is my affliction coming about because of sin? That's a legitimate question. David was afflicted because of his sin. Because he wouldn't admit it. Because he wouldn't confess. That's what confess means. It means to admit, to agree with. When I worked in the arson unit and I was, re and I was interviewing or interrogating somebody that had set a fire, what am I trying to get from this person? I want him to admit what he did. And you could tell when someone was truly confessing. They didn't hold back details. They didn't try to blame somebody else. I had guys walk me through buildings. Okay, I came over here, I did this, then I went over and I did this, and then I went over and did this, and then I went over here and I did this, and he's, he's, just, he's just walking me through. That's a real confession. I'm admitting. God wants us to confess our sin, to agree that it was sinful, it was wrong, it shouldn't have happened, and I'm guilty. And so, as I look, is, am I suffering the consequences of sin? Is my suffering... Maybe the original issue wasn't relative to sin, but is my suffering exposing sinful thoughts, simple, sinful attitudes in my heart? Sometimes those are exposed by adversity. And in fact, you can see, every person in this room right now can see a visual example of that. If you look at the front of this pulpit, Everything is kind of a nice brownish color, except for a strip right down here where it's blonde. Now, this pulpit, which is a great pulpit, by the way, 
It's actually kind of like my phone. There's so many features of this pulpit that I don't regularly use. There's a hookup for a computer in here. There's all kinds of different things here, and it's nice and solid. It was made by a man in this church who has since uh, moved out of state. So I asked him about this blonde strip. Was that intentional? When you were gluing up these boards together, did you put that one in on purpose? And he said, no. I had no idea it was going to do that. When these, boards were when these boards were unfinished, there was no difference in them. It was when I applied the finish that all of a sudden, all the rest of the wood acted one way, and that one piece acted entirely differently. Now, sometimes affliction can be like that for us. In fact, that's what happened with Job. When Job was originally struck, when he lost his riches, he lost his fortune, he lost his children, and then he loses his health. And he's sitting in the pile of ashes, scraping his boils that are from the top of his head to the soles of his feet with a piece of pottery, trying to bring some kind of relief. And just in dust and ashes as, as, as an outward expression of his misery, his initial responses were right on, right? The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And he doesn't sin. He doesn't blame God. Satan was trying to tell God, listen, you take away what he's had, he'll curse you to your face. Remember we talked about how that word for blessing and the word for cursing, it's the same word. You see, we're attributing to God either those things that are praiseworthy of him or we are attributing things to God that bring that are trying to, uh, to bring shame to him. We, you know, we can praise him for his being all-powerful or yet at the same time we can come over and we can blame him because his goodness, in our opinion, isn't good enough. So we can assign worthiness to him or we can assign unseemliness to him. That's the idea of blessing or cursing. And his original responses are blessing. As time goes on, though, and he's getting beat on by his friends, Job, you must have really sinned, and it must have been bad for things to be like this. Job is defending himself, and out of that defense arises a root of pride, to which he's standing now in opposition to God. God, I'd love to take you to court so that I can proclaim my case to show that basically you're not treating me rightly. And so it's something that God exposed through the suffering. And so when we look in, is what I am suffering a consequence of sin? Now, if the answer is yes, what do we do? Well, we confess and we repent and we turn. We get back on the straight and narrow. As mom used to say, we straighten up and fly right. And so we again, we turn away from the path 
on which we have gone that is against God, contrary to him, and we come back under him in humility and forgiveness and then begin to walk aright. So again, don't be stubborn. Don't be like the horse or the mule to where God's got to reach over and go, whoa, Nelly, I want, you're going that way. Mm, I want you over here. Don't be stubborn. That's the look inward. Then there's a look upward. So turn in your Bible to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter is predominantly about submission and humility, often through suffering. And so we see the ideas of submission and humility throughout the book. And so we are going to fly over and cherry pick here through the book. Chapter 2, if you start in verse 13, you see the command, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And so, again, being submissive, being humble, even being humble to people who are not kind, who are not gentle. They're in a position of authority over you. You are to be submissive to them, and that is submissive from the heart, being subject from the heart. This idea of favor, that word favor, is translated most often grace. If you want to find favor with God, then you patiently endure when you are suffering wrongly. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was being mocked, when he was being blasphemed, that's actually the word for blasphemy, he's being spoken ill of. Those things that he rightly claimed, when he rightly claimed to be God because he was God and therefore deserved to be worshipped as God, and in its place he was mocked, he was spit on, he was ridiculed, 
he didn't revile back. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. When Jesus was being belittled, demeaned, shamed, he's entrusting himself to the Father. He is coming under. This idea of entrusting is handing over with the idea of trust. So for instance, Paul entrusted Timothy you know, uh, with the word of truth. He told Timothy, you take these truths and you entrust them to faithful men. So it's the idea of turning over with an expectation that good is going to come out of that. Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father because God is the one who judges righteously. God knows the actual score. God knows what the truth of the matter is. And so God is able then to judge rightly because he understands rightly. And Jesus can trust him to do that because Jesus is innocent. He knows that God is going to deal with him appropriately. That was a lifelong practice of Jesus coming under authority, submitting his will to the will of his father, submitting his will to the will of his parents, of Joseph and Mary. Mary his mom, Joseph his stepdad. Chapter 3, verse 8, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What does that sound like? God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Look at the description of this. One who's harmonious. Harmonious. You, you all know what, a, what a, a chord is. Several notes played together, right? And a chord that is pleasant to the ear is one where the notes are in harmony with each other. What does a disharmonious chord sound like? All you need is a three-year-old and a piano. Right? Bang, bang, bang. And they're playing all the notes that are right next to each other. And it just, this is why I have short hair. I can't grab it to pull on it when the grandkids are coming over and playing the piano. Not, no, they're banging on the piano. My wife plays the piano. It's very different. Sympathetic. Again, this idea of sympathetic is in line with, in harmony with others so that when one is having difficulty, the other comes alongside to help. 
It's sympathetic in spirit. It's sympathetic in goal. Brotherly. Kind-hearted. Humble in spirit. These people are gentle. They're kind. They're soft-hearted. You don't see any edginess in them. They're not prickly. They're easy to be with because they're not jabbing you all the time in one way, shape, or form. And that results in when evil is cast toward them, they don't respond in kind. When someone speaks evil of them, they don't turn it right around and send it back. Rather, they give a blessing instead. When the other is unkind, they're kind anyway. They're gentle anyway. How did Jesus demonstrate this? You know, when you look at the accounts of the crucifixion, all of the things that Jesus said, with one exception, it says, and Jesus said, aorist, past tense, he said it once. There was something that Jesus was saying. This is something that is continual. Take one guess out of what Jesus said on the cross that he kept repeating. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Now at that moment, he's hanging on a cross with a nail through this hand, through this. He's got a nail through his feet and pretty soon, they're going to come and they're going to shove a sword through his chest. That's reviling. And the chief priests and the scribes are here in front of him and they're mocking him. If you're the son of God, come down. Save yourself and we'll believe. He said he could save others. Let's see if he can save himself. And yet again and again and again, he's returning kindness rather than bitterness. Harmonious, not bitter. Kind-hearted. Not despairing, not angry, not mean-spirited. Do you ever find yourself falling into that category? I haven't gotten what I think I should get, and so I'm going to punish those around me. I'm not going to be harmonious. I'm going to withdraw. I'm not going to speak kindly. I'm going to give the silent treatment. I'm not talking to you, by the way. I'm talking to me here. Carolyn knows full well when I'm not happy about something. 
The idea here is somebody who is living for others. Jump over to chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing was happening to you. So when affliction comes, when trouble comes, we shouldn't be surprised. That's the nature of this life. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. For if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a troublesome meddler. In other words, don't be suffering because you did something you ought to suffer for. If you're suffering, make it be because you have been doing what Christ would have you to do and you're running into opposition from people around you and from the evil one. Verse 19, therefore, also, therefore those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Just as Jesus entrusted himself to God the Father, that God knew what was happening to him, that God was going to give him what he needed in the time when he needed it, you and I are to live in the same fashion. That when trouble comes, we realize that God's fingerprints are all over what is happening with me. In fact, God has brought it. God wasn't surprised by what I'm finding myself in the middle of. God has brought it. And in fact, he's up to something. He's wanting to use that to conform me to the image of his son. And I need to look at that as something that is Right. Remember we talked about that, last, about that last week with Paul. He was given the thorn in the flesh. He wants to get rid of the thorn of the flesh. And God tells him, you need this. And so Paul changes his attitude. He's prayed three times that it be taken away. Now he says, most gladly, therefore, I would rather have my weakness. He talks about, in fact, let's go... Keep your finger in Peter and flip back over to 2 Corinthians 12. Verse, nine, oh, verse 8, concerning this I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me and he has said to me, my grace is sufficient to you, for you for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. That word there, well contented, is the same word, we talked about this last week, it's the same word that Jesus, or that God uses of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, with whom I am delighted. That is the same word here that Paul uses now to describe his afflictions. I am
well content. He changes how he views his trouble. This is no longer something to be pushed away. This is now something to be embraced. Why? Because through it, God is accomplishing his purpose in me. He's conforming me to the image of his son. Back to 1 Peter chapter 5. Verse 5, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Line up under them. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. down to verse 10. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Suffering is short. It has a purpose. God brings it for a reason. Now, God virtually never does anything for just one reason, for one purpose. God is the ultimate multitasker because he'll take the same set of circumstances and use it to accomplish purposes in all kinds of different people, and those purposes aren't necessarily the same. Consider Job for a moment. Who else is in the immediate splash zone for Job when trouble lands? How about his wife, Mrs. Job? She's bearing all of that too now, isn't she? Because that was the family wealth that just went away. Those were her children that just died. How about Job's three friends? How about Job's extended family? They're all watching this. The people who live around Job. Those are all in immediate context because this is something that they can see. They're experiencing it as well. Not in the same way, but they're experiencing it as well. Now, it's likely that Job is the oldest book in the Bible as far as being written. Now, it is impossible for it to have been written later than the destruction of the temple because Ezekiel is with the exiles in Babylon, and God tells him if Noah and Daniel and Job were standing before me, they'd be able to rescue themselves and no one else. So Job is already a well-known figure by that time. That is 2,600 years ago and counting. That's at the latest. At the earliest, Job may have been written about the time as Moses was writing, which is 1400 B.C., 3,400 years ago. How many people have read the book of Job? You've been impacted by what happened with Job because God wrote it down and put it in his book. 
And who knows how many more are going to be. And so here you have a set of circumstances and the ripples just keep going out and going out and going out and only God knows how far they go and what they accomplish as they're moving and what he's accomplishing in all the different people that are there. God is wanting to accomplish his work in us and he's willing to use any tool in order to do that. Austin, when he read Romans 8 earlier, when he talks about what shall separate us from the love of God, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, that goes all the way from, I'm getting squeezed, all the way up to and including death. All of those are tools. They are instruments that God uses. And he's right and he's justified to use any of them. When he wishes, to the degree that he wishes, and why is it that we can trust him? Should we cower in fear because God is sovereign? If he wasn't good, that answer would be yes. But he's all good. He's all wise. He's all knowing. He knows how far to use any of those instruments. And more than that, he doesn't leave us to our own devices because if we will humble ourselves, what will he give us in order to be able to patiently endure? He gives us grace. And so we can trust him. That's the look upward. And again, this needs to be often. The, we used to have, where that screen is now, there used to be a banner years ago. The nearness of God is our good. In times of trouble, when we're humbled, when we're facing circumstances we don't and cannot control, and we finally come to the point of casting ourselves on God because only he can do what needs to be done. What is the result of that? Is it not peace? When I cast my anxieties on him, do I not, in place of those anxieties, receive the peace of God that passes all comprehension, that guards my heart and mind in Christ Jesus? Why is it that you can go to a hospital room, to a bed, and the person lying in that bed knows the score? They're dying. And yet, 
there's an utter expression of peace on their face. There's no fear. There's no anger. There's no anxiety. There's no discontentment. They're utterly at rest because the peace of God is consuming them. When the peace of God is consuming you, there's no room left for fear and for despair and for anxiety. That's the look upward. Third, there's a look outward. So go back to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Passage that I know is very near and dear to a number of you because you're walking these paths. Thirteen chapters in Second Corinthians, and how's this for an opening salvo? Chapter one, verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Paul David Tripp has a book I don't remember the title of the book offhand, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't remember the exact quote. But the, the, the idea is this. You lose out on the blessing of God when you reduce the size of your world to you. When all of a sudden, it's, it's just, it's simply all about you. And extends no further to anybody. You're missing out on the blessings that God has intended for you. God comforts us in our affliction. When we humble ourselves, he gives us grace. He gives us mercy and grace to help in time of need for a reason. And it's not just for our comfort. There's a so that. What does the so that mean? This is happening so that this can happen. We have been comforted by God in all of our affliction so that we're able to comfort others with the same comfort that we ourselves have been comforted by God. Doesn't it make a difference when we're... It's one thing to read, and I'm not... I'm not God's word is true, and I need to take it that way. I believe it simply because God says it. God says this is the way this is, and I need to take him at his word. 
And there's all kinds of examples in the scripture where people have walked through all kinds of difficulty and trouble and they have received grace to help in time of need and if they've been, if they've been delivered, great. And if they haven't been delivered, then they had the grace that they needed to go through even death. God was gracious to them. God fulfilled his promises to them and they had what they needed. Paul writes about how God is going to safely deliver him to his eternal home. He's going to deliver him to his kingdom. Now, what's Paul going to have to do to get to the kingdom? He's going to have to die. And God will be faithful through that. And he'll bring him safely through. I remember my dad had an expression. Sometimes God needs, has to have a face. I can remember there's many, <laughs> sometimes it drove my mom nuts. There would be a horrific event. Um, I remember one occasion uh, a man had committed suicide. Dad brought the wife and the kids home, unannounced. All of a sudden, there's, I can't remember, I think three or four people walking through the door that mom wasn't expecting. And that happened a lot more than once. I watched him on many occasions coming alongside someone with a shoulder. Always looking to point them to the Savior. Of being able to preach the truth, speak the truth to someone in their time of need. We're supposed to be hands-on with each other. Garth's surgery was successful, from what I understand. He got home on Friday. It is my understanding that there are meals stacked up, waiting to be delivered for the foreseeable future. That is the body of Christ coming alongside another member who has a need. And I don't know how many of you, when you take meals over, or, hey, can we visit for a little bit? Can I pray with you? Can I try to encourage you? What's one of the tools of the enemy when you're in, under affliction? That you are alone. It's only you. It's like Elijah. God, kill me because I'm the last one left. To which God replied, guess again, big boy. I still have 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. You know what? When you feel like you're alone and all of a sudden you find out that there's 7,000 more in the neighborhood, that's encouraging. I'm not isolated. I'm not alone. 
When I'm selfish, I shrink my world down to the size of me. When I'm humbled, I'm able to speak encouragement to others in their time of need. All right. In our time that's remaining, how do I recognize, how do we recognize this and then how do we do it? If your suffering is because of judgment, then stop being the horse and stop being the mule. And if I may, stop being the jackass. Confess. Admit. You're not going to surprise God. He knows already. Confess, repent, and believe. When we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? The barrier that's been erected because of my sin, boom, gone. Take the initiative. All right, now here's another part of this. If it's because of sin and I've sinned against somebody else, I need to track them down too. I need to repent, to confess and repent and seek forgiveness. And frankly, if I've harmed them, I need to make it right. I need to bear the brunt for that, not them. That's humbling, isn't it? When you go to somebody to ask for forgiveness, that's humbling. It's humiliating, but humiliating and humbling is, is, is two sides of the same coin. Take the initiative. Don't wait for them. How many times I've been guilty of that with my wife? If we have a disagreement, <laughs> I know that eventually... She'll take the initiative if I don't. And how pig-headed of me and how stubborn of me and how selfish of me to make her do it. Humble yourself. Don't hide your sin. Don't wait for Nathan the prophet. You see, we have something that the vast, vast, vast majority of even believers in the Old Testament did not have. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The vast majority of the time, I know when I've sinned. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out because my conscience is accusing me. And so I've got a pretty good idea of what I did. I may not know the extent of it, but at least I have an idea of what I've done. One more thing when it comes to if my sin, if my judgment, if my affliction is the result of judgment, then don't try to set limits on the consequences that God brings. Hey, God, that's too far. When I try to set limits on what God can bring to me in correction, what am I doing? 
I'm once again setting myself up in opposition to him. I'm not coming under. I'm standing apart. Which means I haven't gotten my lesson yet. And since I haven't gotten my lesson yet, what should I expect? I should be expecting a yank from one direction with a bar of metal right here in my mouth to bring me back over because God is going to be faithful. Those whom he receives, he what? He chastens. If I don't receive correction, if I don't receive discipline when I sin, then I am not a son. If I'm a son and I step out of line, he's going to bring me back. He's going to bring pressure in order to bring me back. Now, if you're suffering unjustly, if because of the cause of Christ you've spoken truth and you're being railroaded, you're being ostracized at work because you haven't kowtowed to the latest social fad, if you're suffering, on account of the name, God has given you a tool. He's given me a tool. And it's humbling. What did Jesus say to do to those who persecute you? Pray for them. And he's not talking about praying imprecatory psalms either. God, please rain down judgment on that guy. Don't be like John and James. Lord, there's someone over here who's not coming in line with what you're saying. Shall we ask for, rain, for fire and brimstone to come down and consume them? You don't know what manner of man you are. At the end of the book of Job, God sends Job's three friends over to him. You guys have not spoken of me rightly. You need to get a healthy offering, okay? Seven bulls and seven rams. They must have been men of some affluence because nowhere for sin by an individual is there ever such a requirement anywhere else in the Old Testament. Seven bulls, seven rams, and you take them over to Job and you have him offer it for you because I'll hear him. And they came to Job and Job prayed for them. And it was when Job prayed for them that his fortune was restored and his kids, he had 10 more kids. Seven more boys, three more girls. And again, did not Jesus do and say the same?
Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. And again, what did Jesus do on the cross? Father, forgive them. You know what? If there was ever a time when it would would have been right to call down fire from heaven, it was at the cross. Jesus was wrongly accused, being tortured and murdered to pay for sin on our behalf. He deserved none of that, and yet he suffered it for us. And his attitude, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. You see no bitterness in him. You see no rage in him. You see no despair in him. You see no anxiety in him. None of those things. Why? Because he was humbling himself under the mighty hand of God that he would be exalted at the right time. When we begin to see division, when we begin to see the desire to isolate, when we begin to see anger, when we begin to see despair, when we begin to see bitterness, when we begin to see resentment in our hearts, that is evidence of pride, it's evidence of selfishness. We need to be watching for those. And we need to learn how, we need to begin training ourselves now. I'm pretty sure you've noticed that our society, our culture, is becoming far more pronounced in their anti-God and their anti-Christianity. Is anybody surprised by that? We kind of see it everywhere we turn, everywhere we look. So the fact of the matter is, persecution's around the corner if you haven't already begun to experience it. So, what to do? Start training yourself now. The next time somebody starts to get under your skin, translated, all of you married folks, right? That does happen. It does happen. That's a place to begin to practice. Don't get angry. Pray. Fact of the matter is, I know Carolyn loves me. 37 years now, I got plenty of examples to list for proof thereof. There's no question about it. Does that mean that she doesn't ever say anything that just kind of put the shoe on the other foot? Ask her that question. So rather than just getting upset, I can start to practice these very things. 
so that when all of a sudden it's more pronounced, it's more significant, then I will be well-practiced. It's not going to be a far jump. Does all that make sense? God uses trouble to humble us. And we need to be humbled. And we should be humbling ourselves so that we can receive grace from God. Last week we looked at the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. The music team's going to come up here. We might as well go ahead and start up now. The closing hymn today is going to be day by day and with each passing moment. It's another hymn that's born out of sorrow. The author of this hymn watched her father drown and die. Now, it's a Swedish hymn. I can't tell you the actual original words because I don't do Swedish. This is the English translation. As you're singing, some of you know this hymn. Ponder the words. Ponder the attitude behind them as you sing. Father, again, we recognize that you alone are God. We're not. You're the one who knows. We don't. You're the one who understands. We can't. And so this morning, we bow our knees before you. And we humble ourselves before you. Oh, Lord, forgive us for our selfishness, for our desire of ease and comfort. Forgive us for our willingness to trade comfort and trade away our sanctification. That we would resist the things that you're wanting to accomplish in us because we'd rather have it easy. I pray for those who are struggling today that you would encourage them, that you would perk up their heart. That their hearts would rise in faith. That they would trust you. That they would take your promises to heart. That they would choose to trust you. that they would have that attitude that Job had, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. And I pray for us who are not in adversity at the moment that we would come alongside those who are to encourage them, let them know they're not alone, that we would help to comfort them with the comfort that you have comforted us with. Father, help us to, to be active with one another. That we would be gracious with each other. That we would be stimulating one another to love and good works. And so much the door as we so much the more as we see the day approaching, drawing near. We love you. Help you help us to demonstrate our love and adoration for you in obedience and worship. In Christ's name, amen.
Our benediction comes from the end of the book of Hebrews. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you.